Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once, it's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com Hello and welcome to Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast. I'm Ben Eshmaid and on this week's Archive Edition, we revisit a conversation between acclaimed cartoonist and author Art Spiegelman and jazz composer Philip Johnston. Let us explore the place where music meets art, the comic book comes alive, where wordless art finds a voice. I had never really thought about the connections between jazz and comics. They're kind of bastard children of their art form. One of the things I especially like is when I was a kid, I didn't play an instrument, so I never got to go on the road with a band or anything, so I'm getting to do it in the second part of my life. This is really meant to serve as an introduction to a genre that most people don't know about, and to those who know a little bit about it, to show you more work to enlarge that spectrum of work and what its implications are. Back in November 2016, Art and Philip brought their show Wordless to the Barbican. On this evening in the hall, they transformed the solitary act of reading comics into a group experience. Spiegelman narrated, taking you on a journey through the history of the graphic novel, from silent picture stories of the early 20th century through to the present day, while Johnston reacted to the images and history, performing with his ensemble, The Silent Six. Around the time of the performance, I managed to hook up with Art in New York and Philip in Australia. How how did you both become aware of each other's work? I had been trying to do a project that's got too big a scope to go into here, but it was going to be an opera about comic books called a three-panel opera. And I was invited to do it by some composers who, after I found out more about opera, I found out I didn't like their music, and that's pretty important in an opera. But then I was hunting around for somebody else to work with, and throughout this whole process of hunting, a number of people, including uh, John Zorn and uh, Paul Auster, were suggesting that I contact Philip Johnston, did go, totally unrelated to this, to a screening in Prospect Park of Todd Browning's The Unknown and took my kids to it. And it had live uh, music accompaniment, and I loved the music. It was so great, a jazz accompaniment. So afterwards, I went up to the stage and bought whatever album they had of their work. And I was going, I should contact this guy, and then found out it was somebody that for months, people were saying, why don't you contact this guy? So it was all sent, my manuscript of where I was at was sent to Philip. He wrote a letter back saying, I'm all over this like a cheap suit. And the rest, of course, is history. I think we should say we did work on Drawn to Death for five years. We could never get it aloft. So even though there were nibbles, it never came together, but we kept moving forward. And I loved what Philip was doing. We stayed friends, but we didn't have a project until the Sydney Opera House invited me to come over to something a festival they have called Graphic in Sydney, which is where Philip lives and lived then, although not when we were first working on stuff together when he was based in the U.S. And Turned out they just wanted me to go to this opera house 
four-fifths of the way around the world in order to be interviewed on the stage. And I said, that seems like a lot of traveling to be interviewed, and I can usually do that in bed or on Skype or whatever. My response was then, well, how about if you have an opera house, could we use it? We can do something on your stage. Well, sure, what have you got in mind? And what I had in mind turned out to be wordless. First of all, I jumped at the chance to work with Art again. I think I'd always hoped that we could do something else together. And I also was familiar with a little bit of this material that became the backbone of what became wordless. So then became, became this whole process of figuring out what the show was going to be, what the form it was going to take was, because we had to sort of invent the form as we were going along. And uh, uh, that was a fantastic process of discovery. It doesn't fit into any specific category easily. It started out by being invited into this uh, graphics festival. And that was a little bit after I'd just written the introduction and acted as the editor for a Library of America collection of Lind Ward's silent woodcut novels. And I got reinterested in a form that I'd really been fascinated by in my teens and 20s and started looking around at practitioners of this small genre. But in any case, I wanted to present this in my lectures on comics, but it was too big a subject all unto itself. Thinking about it, researching it, and then being offered a chance to do it with a uh, Philip was perfect because Philip had just been hacking away at doing the, well, that's the wrong word, whacking away, let's say, not a hack, <laughs> at, uh, at doing uh, new soundtracks for old silent films, which is, as I said, is what totally won me over to his work the first time I heard it, was now even studying silent film scores for, what is it, a master's or a doctorate that you got recently? Uh, PhD. PhD. So since this thing, in order to talk about this genre, it required showing enough of it because it's obscure enough so that most people can't be expected to know anything. But in order to show it, it could get kind of deadly. I mean, I could leave a pile of books in the center of the opera house and say, read it, and then we'll talk about it after you've looked at the 150 images or something. Uh, so what it turned into was taking these um, picture novels inspired themselves by silent film figuring out how to turn it into something that didn't look too much like a film, but enough so that you'd be able to follow the stories. And the music, the goal was to make live musical accompaniment in different styles for the tone and mood of each of these, something a little bit like a stand-up comedy routine with something also that's a little bit like, uh, whatever, 13 or 15 short movies. Could you speak a little bit about the journey of the show? Where, where do you start and where do you end? Huh. Um, well, let's see. I pretty much start with what happened to comic books and how come they became called graphic novels and so on. And it goes back to this moment where comic books, per se, were seen as like unsavory. Like the comic strips that appeared in the Sunday newspaper, they were unsavory because uh, you weren't supposed to reading color funnies about cats and jammer kid anarchists on a Sunday. You're supposed to be reading something more wholesome like the Bible or something. But comic books and comic strips, which until recently had no pedigree, how did like these wordless comics happen, the ones that don't have balloons in them? And what are, what are the implications of that? And that's a little too much to go into now, but it becomes thoroughly explicated in the course of our, whatever it is, hour and a half. And pretty soon it led to a very serious thing, could only be looked at a very close relation of comics, but were taken totally seriously by the uh, cultural gatekeepers. This was seen as 
an astounding high art achievement and reviewed as such in the same newspapers that wouldn't even acknowledge that they had comic strips elsewhere in the paper because that was just for the semi-literates that were subsidizing the culture pages. To answer it really quickly, it goes from the beginning of comic strips into the comic books and what happened to them to make them so seem so unsavory, and from there into silent comics that start pretty much, I think the first thing we use is by H.M. Bateman, maybe, a great British punch artist, and then the last thing we use is by me, and in between we, we traverse that particular century. You're both kind of speaking in your own language, though, aren't you? Yeah, but they're languages that cross over quite often and quite happily. Yeah, it's interesting. I had never really thought before we started working on this project about the connections between jazz and comics. They were just two things that I loved. But since we've been doing interviews, people have asked us about the connections. And and I think both of them, they're kind of bastard children of their arts forms, which have always been a little not so respectable, though now, of course, in 2016, they've both become sort of overly yes. respectable. From now we have to like piss on the carpets and get kicked out or something. Yeah. I mean, one of the connections is it's surprising how many cartoonists I know just listen to jazz as opposed to Kanye West or something. I don't know. Mm. That's maybe generational. I'm not sure. And also how like a lot of the comics art that I really like has been inspired by jazz. I just finished this afternoon reading a biography of George Harriman, and and he comes from a fusion culture. And as a cartoonist passing for white, he created probably the great masterpiece of comics, Crazy Cat. And Crazy Cat is just infused with jazz references, jazz lyrics. Ultimately, man, it's made the way jazz tends to get made, maybe even more so than the way we made the soundtracks for this very precise needs of Wordless, in that he was obviously imp improvising from the moment his pen hit the paper. You know, it's interesting that one of the things that I've been thinking about recently since I've been writing this article is how both jazz and comics seem totally improvised, like they have a very loose, free, kind of wild, out-of-control, improvisational feel, yet they're not really, because so much work goes into them, and so much is about each artist developing their own language. There's also that sense of experience. It, it may seem improvised or, or, or that way, but it's a, about what's happened to you up until that point. Absolutely. I think that's part of it, though I kind of always pull back a little bit from that whole you have to suffer to sing the blues, and I don't know, I think that can be a little bit over-romanticized. Take it from me, I have, to, I have to suffer to sing my blues. But it's very funny to talk about these woodcut novels. Woodcuts are very arduous to make as improvisations, although even there, there are aspects of it that probably are improvised. But with Harriman, at least, on the one end of an extreme, he really was riffing around a very small theme and finding every possible way to make that theme deal with different things. That one, the style, the styles shift to like accommodate the needs of the piece. And obviously when you're working with a sextet, the music's going to have some commonalities. Yeah, I think one of the things about the music is that most of it is not technically what you would call jazz, informed by a kind of jazz sensibility. And jazz itself, and again, in 2016, has evolved as classical and pop music have, 
to encompass all these different styles. Though, if you look back historically, again, to the work of people like Duke Ellington and Charlie Mingus and so on, that's always been part of what jazz is, absorbing styles from Latin music and different cultures, going all the way back to Jelly Roll Morton, who I guess had a similar background to George Harriman in a way. The music goes a lot of different places um, stylistically, from tango to early jazz to avant-garde 20th century music and 21st century music, to different forms of jazz to something that's more like classical music. Part of it is encompassing all these different languages. One of the things I especially like is when I was a kid, I didn't play an instrument, so I never got to go on the road with a band or anything. So I'm getting to do it in the second part of my life. And I really love it because these uh, six musicians, we've now pretty much been together for enough presentations of this. So insofar as there is a kind of written score, they've now found ways to like uh, get under the radar and riff in every like piece somewhere or other. They don't usually get to play these things often enough to like learn them. Now that they're learned, it's time to go off the reservation. Is it a fun thing to, to, to watch, Philip, or are you too, too busy involved with the music? Well, um, both. It is a fun thing to watch. We are glued to a lot of sheet music, but there's not music through the entire thing. During the process of making and performing the work, it's been, uh, oh, it's just been such a pleasure to spend a lot of time with these images because they're so rich. They really reward repeated viewing a lot, especially certain ones. Um, the Mazza reels, I just, I never get tired of looking at them over and over again, which is the same way I feel about silent films is that they're so rich. They, they reward repeated viewings. No, each time it's fresh. And as Art says, the musicians are continually improving upon my score and making it sound better than it did just the way it was written on the page. So that's always a, a, a fun part of it also. Plus, they're just such incredible, great musicians. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah. 
at Plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. What other sort of general themes do you explore? I mean, I wondered whether there's a certain emotional response to the music and to some of the images. Well, I would say that for uh, this, that's kind of a big topic. Um, but the relationship between the work and our contemporary interpretation of it, because, of course, like silent films, we can never see a graphic novel, for lack of a better word, that was made in the 1930s, say, the same way somebody would have in 1930. We're looking at it already through a very diffuse lens. Once you add music, you're supposed to, as a composer, you're generally considered responsible for communicating some objective meaning, which is in the work itself. Yet at the same time, we know that we can't. People talk about expressing the artist's intention. We'll never really know what that intention is. So there's always a delicate balancing act between expressing what you are interpreting as the intent of the artist and then adding your own experience of perceiving that work and putting that into the music as well, which functions as underscore uh, subtext or commentary. So it's a kind of juggling act. It doesn't quite answer your question, which is a fair one, which is uh, emotionally, some of them are funny. Some of them will make you want to slash your wrist. Some of them will get you angry. Uh, some of them are just like fascinating stories. Some of them are just visual kind of kaleidoscopes of amazing imagery. And there's certain common themes that go through all of them. There's like uh, probably one of the main ones is political. Because while we were doing this, it became obvious that the uh, <laughs> even before Brexit and before Donald Trump, it was obvious that the world has been turning to shit. And so it deals with the world turning to shit a lot. It's true of this genre, especially, that uh, a number of these artists were like uh, hardcore pacifists. Others were uh, convinced uh, commies at a time where that wasn't quite as pejorative, like right after World War I. Because this genre flourished between about 1918 and about... 19, oh, let's say the beginning of the war years. Uh, and there is outlying work from before that and from more recently, but for the most part, that's when it flourished. And a lot of it was political. So it did deal with the 99% and the 1% that dealt some of them with women's fate in the world. It, it really does deal with life and death, even the really hilarious ones. So there's a gamut of subject matter, but it's in a relatively narrow spectrum. There's nothing that talks about how cool um, monopolizing wealth is. I, I don't think we included anything like that anywhere, if there is one like that. But it does deal with anti-war themes, with anti-authoritarian themes in very different ways, one from the other. And it also um, deals with uh, melodrama. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
Normally, um, reading a comic is a, a personal experience. W- what do you get by it becoming a, sort of a communal, sort of sharing sharing it? Well, it's more efficient than asking everybody to read it and pass the book around because I'd have to move to London for a month. So I think that it offers certain possibilities. What Philip said before, which is that, man, I love looking at these pictures over and over again. Each time it's like the first time. This is really meant to serve as an introduction to a genre that most people don't know about. And to those who know a little bit about it, to show you more work, to enlarge that spectrum of work and what its implications are. But it is an introduction. You've been introduced to it. You have a sense of it. And both the music and the few words that I say in front of, behind, or during something will goose you along to get a better sense sense than if you're trying to like figure out this enigmatic thing from scratch. But I also think there's something very special about getting a bunch of people in a room and doing a live performance with live music. There's just nothing. That's why we do it. Otherwise, we could send around a film strip or a YouTube video or something. You know, if, if I screw up, I'm likely to get uh, run over by two or three saxophones. The reason is, like, it's really hard to describe the genre it's in because lecture makes it sound like, oh, I guess I'll go and snooze and get some points toward my Oxford degree or something. But um, this isn't that, nor is it really vaudeville, although it has some aspects of just like uh, lowbrow entertainment, I suppose. The main thing is it's this strange hybrid that uh, people seem to have liked, and I don't blame them. I'd love to be in the audience sometime and watch it. Can't figure out how to do that. I mean, that's really interesting. I mean, you, you both... Uh, mentioned you know you both have a lot of experience in academia uh but this is a show that i presume anyone can walk into and they will take something from you know instantly reacting to the images and the music absolutely um it's varied enough so that like uh we've had some kids in the audience who even like well i wouldn't recommend it uh (laughs) but they they might have been glassy-eyed because they were breastfeeding through the entire performance i'm not sure but um it has worked on people I wouldn't have thought it would work with. And anybody even with a remote interest in either jazz, silent film, graphic art, or comics is going to, I think they don't need any other prior education to like go flying through this. Yeah, I think even if you don't have a background in the history of comics or jazz and so on, it'd be you have to be open to it if you're one of those people who is only wants to see uh whatever is the latest thing on the voice or whatever maybe it wouldn't interest you but most people it seems to speak to them just as outside of definitions just as a kinetic experience in the course of an hour and a half you're getting uh what like an overview of these media and experience these media and you're getting about 15 stories that's not a bad deal tells me to stop trying to keep time with my hand because I'll never learn how to do it. I think that I've learned a lot about music by having to like listen much more carefully than I could just have the luxury in other instances of like, whoa, that sounds great, and I'm just moving to it. And in terms of my own art form, it's made me understand why I have language in my comics, what I do with language when I add it in, even if it's by negative example. I tried a couple of things that are totally silent. Learned a lot about my medium from having to think this through. And I would say also that it's literally kept me busy for the last year because one of the artists that was the most obscure in the cluster of people, I befriended when we first started the project in... 2012, I think we started. Yeah, like... <laughs> ah, yes. Close, uh, though. Always think about getting older. Okay. 2012. And I got very friendly with an artist who was uh, about uh, 93 then. 
And uh, we began to become friends. And I spent a lot of time with him and started seeing what he had been doing all his life, which was mainly painting, but he was kind of a a serial painter, fortunately not a serial killer, but he was painting pictures that meant to be near each other, even when they weren't quite narrative. And I got so interested that the piece that's in the, that's in the show has now been made into a book that's coming out in October in the U.S., and that's an artist named Sai Lu. And I would say, out of all the people shown, he, he has the most obscure badge on him, but is definitely worthy of something very other, although he just died about, I guess, uh, a month or so ago just in time to see the finished book. One thing that that makes me think about is just each one of these sequences of images by a different artist was kind of like a different nut to solve, a different problem of what the music was going to be, what the relationship between the music and the images was. And since we've done this, and I've spent a lot of time with it, playing it, looking at it, um, watching the reactions, I've just gotten so many ideas about things that I didn't do that I could have done. And of course, we looked at a lot of work that we considered, but for time reasons, we put it aside. So one of the things I keep coming back to is maybe when we're done playing this all out, maybe there could be a wordless two, and we could put together another whole show of all the things that we rejected and uh, and there would be opportunities to approach them in, a di- in ways that I neglected the first time around. I know that's wildly, wildly impossible and impractical. No, no, it's not impossible. We talked about a few things that we never even got very far on and would be uh, for another time. And some of that sounded really intriguing. But I got to say that when we first did it, I didn't think beyond we're going to do this thing at the Sydney Opera House in about whatever it would be, a year. And I spent so much of that year planning this thing. And then as soon as it was over, we got standing ovations and everything. But then I went, shit, that's it. We worked for a year. It was about an hour and a half or a little over. And I think there's easily an evening worth of wordless, too. Anyway, it's something that I think about a lot. I'm looking at the work because, I mean, you know, Art, I don't even, I don't have to even count up the ones that we already, some of them we wrote the music for the whole thing and then had to cut them out of the show. Oh, there's just tons of material that we could go back to. Thanks to Philip and Art, and back on the 11th of November 2016, I, like many others, enjoyed a powerful evening of words and images, a tour of the imagination with two absolutely compelling guides. I'm Ben Eshmade. Thanks for listening to this archive edition of Nothing Concrete, the Barbican podcast, here to inspire more people to discover and love the arts with weekly episodes of archive finds and theme series. Subscribe to Nothing Concrete on Acast, Spotify or wherever you find your podcasts. And if you can, leave us a review to help us get the word out. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.